going to 1 Samuel chapter 13 and also 1 Samuel chapter 17. Do my best not to keep you too long. We have special events like a dedication that does stretch our service a little bit, but it's important that we do these things. 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're starting to read at verse 19. It says, Now there was no smith found throughout all the land of Israel. That's speaking about a blacksmith. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But all the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen every man his share or his plow and his coulter and his axe and his mattock. Yet they had a file for the mattocks and for the coulters and for the forks and for the axes to sharpen the goads. The goad was the pointed stick, often with a metal tip they would use to make the oxen move. So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan, but, or only, with Saul and with Jonathan were there found. Only two of them had swords. Moving over to chapter 17 of the same book, verse 31 says, and when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him, speaking of Goliath. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, thou art not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, thy servant kept his father's sheep, There came a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion... And out of the poor of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. And Saul armed David with his armor. And he put an helmet of brass on his head. And also he armed him with a coat of mail, like chain mail. And David girded his sword, still, still Saul's sword, not David's, upon his armor. And he essayed to go, or he tried, he endeavored to go, for he had not proved it. David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. David put them off from him. And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook, put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip, and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. The help of the Lord this morning, I'm going to preach about weapons weapons let's pray father we thank you again for your wonderful presence that is here for your goodness for your love for your mercy and i pray today that you would minister to us lord that you would have your way in this house we ask in jesus name amen the background to first samuel chapter 13 is that israel had been in conflict with the philistines 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 whichever you prefer for some time 
and that, that actually lost some pretty significant battles in that process. Perhaps the most notable being the one where the Ark of God was taken into captivity. And during a period of dominance over Israel, the Philistines removed all their blacksmiths from the land, took them away so that the Israelites, even to have something made or to have something of their farming equipment sharpened, had to go to the enemy and have their weapons prepared, restored, or made. And so without the craftsmen with the necessary skill who knew how to heat the forge and how to work with the iron, their ability to make weapons was incredibly limited. Uh, It's possible they had bows and arrows, something that you didn't need so much iron for, but swords and spears were not common. And our text tells us that only King Saul and his son Jonathan had a sword. If you read the beginning of the chapter, you'll find that between them they had about 3,000 men, but only two swords. I don't know how fast you can pass the sword around in battle, but it didn't seem like a lot of good weapons. Amen. And it is something of a sad reflection on humanity that as technology has advanced, one of the things that also advances with the advance of technology is mankind's new and creative ways to kill each other. You go back to ancient times with swords and spears, and I don't have this necessarily all in the right order, but you move along to things like cannons, muskets, catapults, and then some rifles and some simple explosive devices to more advanced explosive devices to bombs and machine guns to war in the air and war in the sea and war under the sea, missiles that can fly from one country to another, Nations with nuclear capabilities, often frighteningly ruled by crazy people with their fingers on the trigger. Weaponized drones, and on and on it goes until we live in a, in a world where there's enough nuclear weaponry to basically destroy the earth many times over. And the way we keep the peace is that each nation keeps getting more weapons so that the other one will, won't retaliate and it just gets stronger and stronger, hoping that we don't blink first. But mankind continues to look for ways to destroy each other, even without explosives. This is the depravity of sin. They source toxins and diseases that already exist, like anthrax, smallpox. And they look for ways to weaponize them. Or they try to find ways that they can make them more potent. That they can find ways that they can distribute them as far as possible as quickly as possible and as devastatingly as possible. We know this as chemical warfare. And uh, it's, it's not a new thing. From what I could find, it's been happening since about 600 BC, when in a conflict, one army poisoned the water supply of another army with a naturally occurring poison to kill off that city. So this is not a new idea. David found himself in chapter 17 at a battlefield where an ancient technique was being used. The idea of a contest between champions. Rather than hundreds and thousands of men running down into the valley and hacking at each other, they would choose a champion. And the biggest, ugliest, nastiest guy on one side would bellow out to the other side, and their biggest, ugliest, nastiest guy would would come out, and they'd they'd have this display of bravado and, and... Because after all, if if one champion beats the other, then the winning side gets all these slaves for free. 
rather than dead bodies. They get a whole free labor force. That was kind of the thinking behind that. And But David's approach to the battle was different to any of the other soldiers that were there. We know that he came, and if, just to give you some background, if you're not familiar with the story, being the youngest in the family, he wasn't yet in the army, and his father sent him to sort of take some supplies to his brothers who were in the army and to see how things were going. And he gets there, and all there's fear in the camp. They're terrified of this giant Goliath. And he comes in, and he's hearing all the stories of what's going on and, and how this man has stand, stood up and defied the armies of Israel. And he was a big guy. He made Brother Carlo look small. He was a big guy. And Saul's even increasing a reward, trying to tempt somebody to risk their life and go out and fight the giant. But they're all terrified. And David comes and says, why should there be a reward? He said, what will be done to the man that kills this guy? He said, I'll fight him. And his brothers are like, oh, you're just a troublemaker. And so finally, word gets back to King Saul that there's one person in the whole army that will fight the giant. And Saul's thinking, finally, we might, we have a chance. And David walks in. Saul's a little bit underwhelmed. He's looking for a warrior. And a shepherd boy walks in. And he's like, how can you go and fight this giant when you're just a kid? And he's been a soldier since he was a kid. And David begins to tell him a story of how as a shepherd the lion came and a bear came and how through the name of the Lord, he was able to get the victory. Amen. He was able to overcome. You see, the sad thing is, David was employing a technique that every single soldier in the army could have chosen to employ. David knew what his weapons were, and he knew who his God was. And that was enough for him to say, it's not about how big he is or how big I am. It's about how big my God is. And he knew that that was the determining factor of the outcome. And if I leave nothing else with you this morning, it's this thought that we need to know what our weapons are and we need to know who our God is because it will change your battlefield. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war, we do not fight after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not natural earthly things, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. There's a comparison. There's, when it says that our weapons are mighty, it means the other ones are weak. They're not carnal, but ours are actually mighty. And they are for casting down imaginations and every high thing, not some of them, but every high thing, that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and for bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this, but not a single Israelite that stood on their side of the valley had drawn his sword in anger because a giant had exalted himself against the knowledge of God and they believed him. They believed what Goliath said. He said, come fight with me. I'll give your carcass to the birds of the air. And they believed him. Amen. 
they were convinced before they'd even swung a sword or thrown a spear. Do you think, and I'm not going to preach long this morning, but do you think that it is a coincidence that in these last days, and I believe we're living in the last days, that in these last days in our society, at least in the Western world, we are not seeing an epidemic of disease. We're not seeing an outbreak of some plague. But what we are seeing an epidemic of is mental illness and a conflict in the minds of humanity. The devil is taking things, if you'll allow me to draw this parallel, that occur naturally in sinful humanity, such as fear, anxiety, and depression. And he is weaponizing them like never before. I'm not an old man. I'm 47 years of age. But when I was at school, when I was in my teens, we got something going on with this mic. When I was a young person, we didn't hear about anxiety. We didn't hear about fear. We very rarely heard about depression because it was not the problem that it is today. Now, let me be very clear. I'm not speaking about any of these things in a disparaging situation. These things are a very real struggle for a lot of people. But it's also not a coincidence that in Luke chapter 21, when Jesus is talking about the last days, he says that men's hearts will fail them for fear. Why? Because they will look around at the things that are coming on the earth. They will have no hope. They will have nothing to hang on to. And they will be overcome in their minds. Amen. Again, do not misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that mental illness is something that you simply should just get over. It's not that simple. There are some very valuable treatments and therapies in our world that can make a difference. I'm not some, pardon the expression, but snake handling nutcase that thinks there's no place for medical science. There is a place for that. But if a giant is looking at you from across the valley and natural reasoning says, put this helmet on or use this sword or wear this chain mail, you need to know what your weapons are and who your God is. David knew what he'd won the battle with before. And a carnal king said, these are the tools you need. And David said, no, no, these, these don't work for me. I've never used these things before. And he took out of his bag an old leather sling that was worn and, and, and soft from use. And he went down to the river like he'd done so many times before and he took five smooth stones and he used something that he knew God had used him to defeat enemies with before. Amen. Because there are battles that we will face that are not after the flesh. And those weapons will not get it done. Amen. We're going to pause for a moment. I'm going to let you lift your hands and worship the Lord while we do Bless the Lord. Whee, that's loud. Now that you're all awake. Amen. <coughs> it's interesting to me that the warnings that Paul gave to Timothy that are written about First and Second Timothy remember are written to the church about the last days let me read some of these to you i don't know if i gave these to you daniel or not but first timothy 4 1 to 2 
It says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, deliberately, accurately, that in the latter times, in the last days, some shall depart from the faith. Why? Giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines, things that they believe, speaking lies in hypocrisy, and having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Where does all that happen? In here. The second epistle of Timothy, chapter 3. Paul said, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, on and on and on, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, knowledge without power, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. He said, For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's happening here. You learn here. False doctrine is accepted here and here. Amen. You don't get doubt in your leg. Don't wake up in the morning and think, I feel fear in my ankle. It happens here. It happens here. The same apostle wrote to Timothy and said, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's why the Bible says, because, see, the Lord knew. That's the awesome thing about God. Nothing surprises Him. He knew what we would face in these last days. And in preparation for that, he said to Joel hundreds of years ago, take that pen or that iPad or whatever Joel was using and say, write, for in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, not on some, but upon all flesh. And if I can make this statement, we are living in the hour where God wants to weaponize the Holy Ghost where he wants to infect enough people that he can destroy fear, that he can take away anxiety, that he can deal with depression. That's our weapon. Hallelujah. It's not time for a pleasant social sip of the Holy Ghost. But he said, be filled with the Spirit. Be not drunk with wine where is an excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Hallelujah. We've got to understand it's not just about the new birth. Having the Holy Ghost, yes, you've got to be filled with the Spirit. The Word of God says we don't have the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. But it's not just you don't just tick a box, stamp your passport and wait for heaven. It is the power of God right now. I was filled with the Holy Ghost when I was 11. You do the maths. It's a long time ago, but if I haven't got it today, my passport's expired. But I need it right now in this last day and age because don't think, don't think the devil's not trying to come against God's children with fear and anxiety and depression and any other mental condition that you can name. Don't think he's not trying to sow that in the church. 
But prophetically, under the anointing of the Holy Ghost, Paul said, the spirit that God gives you, it's not fear. It's, it's love. It's power. It's a sound mind. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's power. Jesus said, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses. That's not talking about knocking doors or stand on the street. That's talking about who I am, witnesses to the life-changing power of God. That my old life is gone, the fear, the anxiety. And if I'm filled with that spirit, something's shining out of me that people see and say, he has something different. And if somebody tells you the baptism for the Holy Ghost is not for you, you need to say, have a nice day and walk away. Because it says the promise is for you, for your children, the little one we dedicated, and all those that God's still calling. So if you believe He's called you to be a part of His family, it's your promise. It's your promise. Hallelujah. It's not a spirit of fear. It's power. Power to cast down those imaginations. You couldn't do it without it. But when you know the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God, you have authority that you can take those things and say, hey, that's getting above God. I'm going to cast that down. You know what's going to happen? It's going to try and come up again. Oh, it will. But you've got power. Take it by the scruff of the neck and say, get back down. Get back down again. Hallelujah. The Spirit's not of fear, but it's of power and it's of love. And love, we can only understand how powerful the love of God is. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a a nice chopped chip cookie and a glass of milk. It's a weapon. It's a weapon. It's a weapon. The Bible says that there was a gulf between us and God that we could not cross and that His holiness would not mix with. And so he said, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He was manifest in flesh. He demonstrated love. He wrapped himself in flesh. He became love, personified. And Colossians tells me that he took all those things on that long list that was against us and he nailed it to the cross, triumphed over it openly. And he said, that's the power of my love. Let me tell you something. If you struggle with fear and you're born again, God does not want you to be fearful. First John, what does it tell us? Perfect love casts out fear. If you're fearful, you may be having trouble accepting that God loves you. God loves you just as you are. He doesn't want to leave you that way. He wants to change you. But God loves you. You are His children. And no matter how much this little boy is going to play up when he's older, that's not a prophecy, that's just knowledge. His parents will love him because he's their child. Not because he had a bad day at school and brought home a bad report card. Gets that from his dad, not his mum. That's one you owe me, Sister Heidi. But because he's their son. Yeah, we get frustrated with our kids when they give us grief. We understand that. But we don't go, that's it, I'm putting this one out in the curb for the bulk pickup, you know. And the council comes past, they can take that kid and get out of here. That's our child. When they hurt, we hurt. When they fail, we want to restore. That's his, and that's our limited love. I can't love like God can. 
But his love for you as his children. If you're afraid, you need to ask God to give you a fresh revelation of how much he loves you. Because that spirit is not of fear. It's of power and it's of love. And it's a sound mind. That sound mind, that word that the word that's translated from only exists in that portion of scripture. And when you look at the meaning of it, it has to do with discipline. We're talking about spiritual disciplines in our Bible class. It has to do with regularly accessing that spirit so that there isn't fear, but there's power, there's love, and there's the ability to take a hold of our minds. Amen. That's why the Apostle Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. It's not talking about being drunk. It's talking about being disciplined. It's talking about being in control. Not by your strength, but by his. And many of you know this, but to gird up, when they used to, in the, in the Middle East, and they wear those long robes, they go to fight or work or run, they take those long, ro- those long flowing robes and they take them and tuck them into their, their girdle, into their belt, so they could run, so they could fight, so they could do what they had to do without stacking it, we would say. I don't think that's King James, but it works. And Peter is saying, your mind is the same. You don't need loose things flapping around in your mind. He's saying, get a hold of those loose ends, bring them under control, tuck them in, be sober. Don't be distracted. And hope to the end. For the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God is in you. You have a hope. I think it's Hebrews that tells us is anchored within the veil. That's within what he achieved through his humanity. We have an anchor that cannot be moved. If we let go, it happened on our end, not on the other end. Talking about our weapons this morning. Amen. Amen. We've got to be filled with the Spirit. If you're fearful, you've got to start saying, why? Where does this come from? Is this of God? And you've got to take that thought, that evil imagination, drag it into the presence of God, line it up against his word and say, these are not compatible. You said that your spirit, you know, there's nothing wrong with reminding God of what he said. Not that he's forgotten. He's not going to go, oh yeah, I forgot I said that. But there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, you told me that this spirit that you put in me is not fearful, but it's got power and it's got love And it's got a sound mind. So something's got to change. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I believe we're living in the age where God wants to weaponize his spirit. Amen. Where he wants to deliver us. Again, I'm not saying that there isn't things that can help with some of those mental... I'm not being belittling to that. I don't want to be misunderstood. I believe sometimes God delivers us from those things instantly. Other times it's a process. It's exactly the same way he deals with our physical bodies. Sometimes there's an instant miracle. Sometimes he reverses the sickness and begins a healing process. The same thing can happen in your mind. But either way, he doesn't want us to be prisoners to those things. Either way, when he said, I've given you that spirit, if you've got fear, if you're weak, if you feel unloved, you need to get a fresh baptism of the Holy Ghost this morning. Hallelujah. Let's stand together.
Cash, if I could have you on the piano, please. There's a scripture in Isaiah that some of us know as a song. Some of us don't read the verse beforehand, though. Isaiah chapter 54. I don't think I put this in the notes for you, Daniel, so don't panic. The Lord said, Behold, I created the smith. He said, I made the the blacksmith. The one that's making weapons, the one that blows on the coals in the fire, that bring forth an instrument for his work. He said, I created him. So when you're in a battle, the next verse is the one we like to quote. It says, No weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. No weapon. It doesn't say there won't be weapons formed. I wish it said that. I wish it said there ain't going to be no weapons. It just says, it basically says, there are going to be weapons formed against you. But they won't prosper. They will not achieve the enemy's purpose. Why? Because God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. Hallelujah. I feel like somebody needs to take their mind and their heart and just marinate it in the Holy Ghost this morning. Take someone and say, God, I don't want to be a prisoner of this anymore. I don't want to think that. I want to be convinced without doubt of your love for me. I don't want to be afraid. 